HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. Since 2009, HRN podcasts have been exploring the wide world of food, beverage, and agriculture. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. We've been making cheese in Wisconsin since before we were even a state, which may be one reason why we win so many awards for it. It's what happens when a whole state dreams in cheese. Find your next favorite cheese at wisconsincheese.com. We talk about food. We talk about music with musical dudes. Finger on the pulse, snacky tunes. Hello and welcome to Snacky Tunes. I'm your host, Darren Bresnitz. We are so excited to welcome back Michael Whiteman, president of Baum and Whiteman International Restaurant Consultants, for his annual sit-down and chat about all things culinary trends. 2023 is shaping up to be a big year with AI making menus, Modadella making a big comeback, and the rise of hybrid meats. We talk about all this and more, some of his big buzzwords for this upcoming year. It's a pleasure. We love hanging out with him and so happy he was able to join us. So please sit back and relax and enjoy Snacky Tunes here on Heritage Radio Network. So 
Michael, welcome back to Snacky Tunes for our annual restaurant food industry trend report. We're always honored to have you back. Happy New Year. Thanks for sitting down with us. And Happy New Year to you and uh, glad we both made it through COVID. Yes, yes, uh, me too. Um, Did the restaurant industry make it through? We'll talk about that in a little bit. Um, But what I wanted to start with today is AI, which has been in the conversation, it feels like, everywhere for the last few months um, as it pertains to IP and art, even term papers, and has seemed to have this negative connotation in some ways on the creative process, but it's also made its way into the restaurant industry in a somewhat positive fashion, at least on the recipe development side of it. How is it integrating itself into the restaurant world? Well, there's uh, two aspects of this in the restaurant world. The the first is the one that we've been reading about in the last month or so, which I discussed uh, uh, in my trends report for this year. And that's uh, the um, image generator programs Mm -hmm. that are are proliferating, uh, where you you type in your criteria, Image generator, give me a, a donut uh, with uh, lettuce and tomato and uh, and mustard <laughs> filling, and uh, the image generator will give you uh, something that looks pretty much like that. Um, actually, the uh, the ability to do this has come uh, even in the last couple of months quite a distance. Uh, in my trends report, I show a picture of uh, the result of what happened when I put in uh, chicken a la king. Uh, into an image generator, uh, and it gave me a picture of a uh, of a chicken sitting in a plush armchair with the crown, which was great. It's great. Which it was be, great. Uh, big big back tattoo for you, I think, is is also in your future for this year, right? 
Yeah, but if but you know, if I were a photographer uh, oh. who was used to being hired by restaurants to shoot pictures for their menus or their uh, oh. Instagram posts, and suddenly I discovered that uh, the chef himself was putting in uh, a cheeseburger with uh, thick slab bacon and a portobello mushroom, and uh, the image generator gave me that, and I just posted it. Uh, if I were a photographer, I would wondering. I'd be wondering what I would do for a living next week. Sure, sure. But is there are there any benefits to AI within the restaurant industry that doesn't result in the loss of creative jobs? Is it going to help with you know managing orders or even figuring out you you know when surges in people coming? Does it even help with coming up with ideas for menus as sort of this? Uh, nebulous sounding board uh well you asked two questions so let, let's I talk did. well that's all right it's your prerogative it's your show <laughs> um and it's my prerogative to answer one and ignore the other okay, um, okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, on the on the operations level uh it's very interesting because a manager or an owner of a restaurant has to juggle um massive amounts of data, uh, not even knowing it, uh, just getting up in the morning and looking out the window and seeing it's raining, says to himself, uh, how many people should I schedule today? And uh, how many how many uh, uh, roast chicken should I roast? Uh, and how many of those chicken are going to be eaten on the premises? And how many are going to be takeout? Uh, and uh, how many dishwashers should I should I schedule because it's raining and maybe people won't show up? And there's a myriad of those questions uh, that uh, a manager instinctively dug, juggles in his head, but is very rarely accurate. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, but uh, artificial intelligence, uh, if you uh, give it the right criteria, uh, can juggle all of that and tell the manager um, uh, who to hire, when to cook, how much to cook. Uh, when to move a, uh, a dishwasher to uh, uh, peeling onions uh, and, uh, and, a, and a myriad of other uh, variables, uh, that will happen. Uh, and uh, it will uh, make life easier for uh, a creative owner, for example. Mm -hmm. uh, it will eliminate uh, a lot of jobs. Mm, yeah. Uh, especially at on the uh, on the entry level, uh, in addition, these artificial intelligence machines are programming uh, other machines uh, that will flip the hamburger, make your French fries. Um, uh, um, make <laughs> so far they haven't got an omelet done yet, but they will, uh, and that is going to wash out a lot of people in uh, restaurant kitchens. Uh, and those people are these days uh, probably uh, the highest cost in running a restaurant. But haven't we seen this before? And I feel like we've even talked about it in years past with these futuristic robot-run restaurants and things like that. How is this moment different than what we've seen in the past? Um we have discussed it in the past, uh, and I've, I've discussed it in my trends for several years now. Um, it, just because I discussed it before doesn't mean we, we shouldn't be discussing it again. Of course, because of course. Plenty of, advantage, of, of advances. Uh, and uh, using artificial intelligence um, allows, uh, let, let's stay with the simple example of, uh, of French fries, um, or fried food um, uh, allows a single machine to decide uh, when you need more chicken wings. Mm. Uh, and if you don't need more chicken wings, well, maybe you need more French fries. Uh, or um, if, uh, if somehow the manager has uh, hollered to the machine, make me more French fries, the machine will automatically say to the manager, don't you want chicken too? <laughs> right, right, right. So um, the more intelligent uh, these machines become, uh, the more useful they are to a manager, they, um, the uh, higher efficiency the back of the house of a restaurant becomes. Mm. And uh, 
what was uh, three years ago uh, a pipe dream uh, for many people is now actually a reality. Uh, mm. the, sweet, the Sweet Green restaurant chain uh, mm. is, um, and we all know Sweet Green because we've all spent our allowance on their salads. Uh, uh, it's a great salad. Yeah, they are good salads. Uh, but they're opening two units in Boston that they say will be fully automated. Uh, I don't know how customers will necessarily accept uh, seeing their food being made by a machine um, and interacting with a machine by uh, punching their order in at a kiosk and uh, having it come out uh, packaged and ready to go. Mm. Uh, the, uh, the A former... Uh, restaurant critic for the New York Times named Nimi Sheraton mm-hmm. uh, once was quoted as saying, uh, food made by machines should be eaten by machines. Mm-hmm. Um, we've gone uh, way beyond that. Uh, and uh, the whole business of automation uh, at this time where labor is short uh, is, is really essential in the restaurant business. Um, whether it will uh, affect uh, in the in the near future, uh, you're getting uh, a cocoa van, uh, or um, your uh, poached eggs hollandaise with smoked salmon. Um, I don't not this year, uh, and uh, and maybe never for certain kinds of restaurants. Uh, but even even at the upper end of uh, of the price scale, uh, there will be applications for this. Will it kill fine dining? No, it won't. <laughs> no. I mean, and how much discussion has been talked about about the death of fine dining? And I feel like whenever there's a big news story or a big restaurant makes an announcement, there is always this hand-wringing of how the industry at whole will be affected. Yeah. Um, you're referring, I, I imagine, to the uh, the latest episode of the blaring headlines of uh, – Noma uh, having yes. closed. Yes. And, well, not, yeah, an announcement of a closure in two years. Yes. Yeah. But yes. Yeah. Well, at the end of at the end of that time, they may not close. We don't. We mm-hmm. don't know. We don't know. Uh, we don't know. No, but uh, the issue uh, with all these hysterical headlines uh, <laughs> is, is is that Noma is closing, and it's the death of fine dining. Oh, I'm sorry about that. Um, Noma can close all it wants to, uh, and it had, will, will have absolutely zero impact on fine dining. It's one restaurant uh, in Denmark where you uh, uh, get to eat boiled reindeer uh, horns and, uh, and, uh, and lichen sauce uh, mixed with uh, you know, who knows what they've scrounged up in the, Lots in the of moss. I believe it's still a lot of moss. Yeah. Um, it Noma has been a very influential restaurant uh, among uh, a, a high-level coterie of chefs who have taken techniques and ideas and applied them in the United States. But it's one restaurant, uh, and if it closes, nothing else will happen. Um, mm-hmm. The subway will still run. The airplanes will still land. Yeah. Uh, the Republicans will still bicker. Uh, <laughs> so... Uh, the headline writers and the food writers are always um, predicting the death of fine dining, um, and somehow it never dies, and it won't. No. Um, all right, well, like, let's take a quick musical break, because when I come back, I do want to talk about some of the shifts in the restaurants we're seeing, and then also um, get into some of the ingredients that you are loving for this year. We have a song from the archives here on Snacky Tunes on Heritage Radio Network.
Back to Snacky Tunes. We are joined once again with Michael Whiteman, who is talking to us about all things restaurant and food industry trends. And I know earlier we were talking about restaurant and the cost of hiring people and how that has been such a factor that is going to be affected by technology. But it's hard to ignore. I think we have seen real inflation. Over the last few years, you know, the cost of eggs alone has doubled or tripled even in some parts of the country. And it's even closed a few of our favorite spots. Conby comes to mind, which closed over this past weekend. Do you think we're ever going to see a world where these prices drop back down? Or is this just the new cost of running a restaurant? We always see a world where prices drop. Um mm. Except maybe in real estate. <laughs> no, no, even, even that bubble, and I'm, I'm in Southern California, has dropped not by much, but but it has gone down. Yeah, no, it, it goes down, and airfares go down too, um, uh, and and the price of filling your your tank goes down as well. Um, the um. We're, su- we're suffering from inflation, and uh, we're suffering uh, in in two ways. We're fr- on the cost of eggs that you uh, uh, mentioned, um, and also the cost of uh, going out for two eggs, toast, and coffee, uh, because the, the, those costs get gets passed on to a consumer. Uh, and uh, restaurant prices have gone up considerably in the last year, maybe 10 12%. And uh, the cost of goods that they've been buying has gone up probably around the same amount. Um, And wages have gone up, but not quite as much. Mm -hmm. Uh, And um, wages won't come down, but the costs will come down. Uh, You will notice that the consumer packaged goods companies, um, people like General Mills, for example, or Pillsbury, uh, are coining money hand over foot because – uh, they've discovered that as they raise their prices, consumers are continuing to shop. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that continued up until beginning of this month when uh, consumers indeed began to pull back a little bit, but we don't know how much. Uh, but it, it, it will all settle out. Uh, it will settle out at a higher level. Uh, it always has. Mm-hmm. And, then, and then life will continue. But right now, for certain people, it's very bumpy. Uh, if you're on the lower um, uh, end of the earning spectrum or even the middle income uh, consumer, uh, you're feeling the pinch uh, because uh, 
I think, for example, if uh, if your rent goes up, which it does, yep. uh, it makes it harder to save for a house. Mm, mm-hmm. Yeah, so, uh, you get you get caught in the trap of being a perpetual renter because you can never accumulate enough money to pay the down payment on a house. And wow. even when you even when you try to do that, the cost of toothpaste goes up, and there goes your budget. Uh, on the other end, mm-hmm. uh, there are. Uh, a large, large number of pe- people making a lot of money, mm-hmm. uh, or at least they were until uh, the beginning of this month, and they've been spending like crazy. Um, I don't know what it's like in Los Angeles, but on the top 50 restaurants in New York where I am, oh, you can't get a reservation. No, it's, it's, it's the same here. It's the absolute same here. Is that you either got to know someone, you got to book a month out. There's no walking in. And in fact, it's if you go to a restaurant and you you're, you're happen to be in the eye line of the door on a Friday or Saturday night, and you watch people walk in with a reservation, there's no room for them. Everything's taken. Among the high earners, uh, they're spending like crazy. Uh, they're going on uh, trips. Airlines are full. Uh, I just got back from Portugal, and hmm. I can tell you there were no seats on my airplane. Um, I mean, no vacant seats. Uh, the no-seat airplane is coming, but not yet. Oh, uh, yeah, you just got to stand across the Atlantic. It's no problem. Yeah. Uh, and uh, one of the other interesting things that we're seeing is uh, the rise of private clubs. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, you have them in, in L.A., and we for sure have them in New York and Chicago and Atlanta and London. Uh these uh, new private clubs are are not the old ones like uh, uh, the Jonathan Club in in L.A., for example, which has been there for a hundred years and have a very, sure. has a very specific kind of membership. Um, these are uh, clubs for new people who are making lots of money uh, and are going to places where they want to be seen in exclusive uh, surroundings, as opposed to an old club where you went because you didn't want to be seen. Exactly. Uh, and Can people uh, expect good food or even name worthy chefs, maybe not to be there, but to design the menus or are these just a way for, to your point, be a membership seen and be seen, but the food is mediocre. Um, well, there's a, there's a yes and a no answer to that. Uh, these clubs are boasting uh, high levels of cuisine uh, and very fancy prices, uh, very often uh, using a name chef as having been uh, either in the kitchen or as a consultant, mm-hmm. uh, more often as a consultant than in the yeah. kitchen. Uh, whether the food delivers that or not uh, remains to be seen. Uh, the, uh, but the, the real social purpose of these clubs uh, is to be able to be with a lot of high rollers like yourself uh, and, uh, and well, yourself or myself. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I have a, I have an easy half a million just to break off for my new private club. It's, it's no problem. Well, well, some of them are charging a couple of hundred thousand dollars worth of admission uh, fees. Yeah. Uh, and um, people are throwing that money within the blink of an eye. Uh, some people are throwing money at clubs that haven't even been built yet. <laughs> it feels so speculative, and it feels like even at the end of the day, the the private independent restaurants still suffer because maybe instead of going to a new restaurant or something that's independent, people are taking that money and going to these private clubs and maybe not supporting the restaurants in their community. Um and in the long run, it seems like those middle tier restaurants will probably be the ones that suffer because the high end top 50 are booked and the fast casuals are getting maybe the lunch money. But those good spots that used to be ubiquitous are playing out. Well, you know, um, your, your point is correct. Uh, however, uh, I have to add that uh, some uh, new restaurants, especially uh, the the big trendy ones, uh, are in fact opening uh, private clubs as part of the restaurants. Mm. Um, so you might have a 
you might have a restaurant on the first floor uh, and a private club on the second floor. Um, in addition to that, you might even have a restaurant on the first floor for the public and a private club on the second floor and an exclusive private club on the third floor. Mm. Uh, right. Work your so, way up. Yeah, that's called stratifying the market. Hmm. Um. You know, look, we're talking about recession. We're talking about these different types of restaurants and things like that. Um, I don't feel like it's the same as 2008, 2009. But are we going to see, should a recession hit, some of those similar trends or even some of the similar dishes that populated so many menus, the cheeseburgers, the fried chicken, or have some of those restaurants sort of already incorporated that strategy in the post-COVID world? Um, I'm thinking of some place like our guest last week, uh, Birdsong, which is a tasting menu up in San Francisco, who now also has Bird Box, which is a whole fried chicken type of restaurant. A mm-hmm. um, couple of things. Let me add to what I uh, was talking about before on uh people spending vast amounts of money up until uh, this month. Mm -hmm. Uh, We do not know, nobody knows what the effect on the restaurant business will be from the 30 or 40,000 tech people that have been laid off in the last five or six weeks. So um, the the people who are blowing or were blowing um, wads of money last week on caviar – Maybe eating canned tuna next week. So uh, that that's a big question and what will happen for the rest of this year in the restaurant industry. Uh, there are, to go back to your, your question, there are a large number of chefs uh, who are running first-class restaurants, not necessarily very expensive, but just first-class restaurants, mm-hmm. who uh, are facing enormous pressure on on the cost ends of their business. And, uh, who believe that they run into a wall when it comes to raising prices. Um, and they are, uh, they are experimenting uh, with fast, casual sorts of restaurants uh, because uh, the, cost, the operating cost structure is much more favorable, uh, specifically on the, on the labor end. And uh, there are, by the same token, uh, a fair number of fast food places that are converting to uh, fast casual, uh, again, because the operating uh, numbers look better, especially since you get get higher prices for pretty much the same food. Yeah, yeah. Um, And finally, the last question I have about restaurants is, now that we're in a new reality, post-COVID reality, and you could argue on what scale that is. Um, We have seen a few stories come out about the return of the food influencer and how it has not always been positive. And I think for a few years, you saw people saying like, hey, it's tough enough to run a restaurant. We're not going to go after them. But now we're seeing these sort of I don't want to say extortion, but I can't think of another word of food influencers posting about not getting free food or in turn for reviews or these, these very quick hits on social media of takedowns and restaurants. How are restaurants now that they seem to be back in fair game, as far as criticism go, how are they going to work with, with this type of relationship that sometimes helps. um, And I think of like the Las Vegas pizza story, the influencer who helped put that restaurant on the map. Versus sometimes when it hurts and it's, you know, people saying awful things because they didn't get a free meal. Well, you know, th- this has all, this has always been the case among um, um, certain levels of restaurant uh, critics and certainly among food writers and even more certainly among food bloggers who think they're doing you a favor by uh, um, coming in and having a free meal and shooting a few pictures. Uh, it's been, uh, accentuated, um, and I, I use the word badly, it's been badly accentuated by TikTok. Mm. Um, to a large extent, uh, TikTok can make a restaurant. 
yeah. And, and it can make a restaurant uh, only because somebody uh, posted a picture of uh, a delivery boy, delivery boy walking through a fast food restaurant with his pants down. Right, right. And, uh, okay, so there's a stunt and everybody suddenly discovers this restaurant and there's a line. Uh, and uh, TikTokers themselves uh, are tend to be a vicious crowd uh, when it comes to reviewing restaurants. So as fast as TikTok can make you, um, it can unmake a restaurant. And, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's one of the prices that we pay for the speed with which social media works. Yeah. Um, All right. Let's, let's take a quick break. And I come back. I want to talk about some of the ingredients that you're loving this year and some of the buzzwords that you're going to see are all over the place on restaurants and beyond menus and things like that. We have another song from the archives here on Snacky Tunes on Heritage Radio Network.
cure all life such a bore when the lights are on. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. There's a reason when you think of Wisconsin, you think cheese. Cheese is a huge part of Wisconsin's history and future. In Wisconsin, the state of cheese, the tradition of cheesemaking excellence began 180 years ago, before Wisconsin was recognized as a state. Immigrants traveled to settle in this lush, green hills of Wisconsin, bringing their cheesemaking traditions with them. These storied skills combined with the freshest milk available created a cheesemaking culture that is uniquely Wisconsin. Wisconsin's 1,200 cheesemakers, many of whom are third and fourth generation, continue to pass on old world traditions while adopting modern innovations in cheesemaking craftsmanship. Find your next favorite cheese at wisconsincheese.com. Welcome back to Snacky Tunes. We are here with Michael Whiteman and moving a little bit away from the restaurants themselves. One of the things I love about your annual, your annual uh, trend list and reporting is your focus on ingredients, because I think sometimes what we cook with and what restaurant use tells a much, much bigger story and none other, I think, than something that we covered in years past, but we seem to now be on the other side of its rise are plant-based food, especially meat. And I know that when Beyond Meat came into the scene, we talked about how this was going to change the industry and even the environment. And that has not been the case. Um, dropping sales, a cliff dive in stock prices, and also uh, uh, more importantly, a turn away from consumer interest for these plant-based meats what happened, and is there any chance of them turning it around? Uh, what happened uh, is a, a complex confluence of consumer trends and and uh, and inflation. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, fundamentally, the uh, plant-based food business, uh, whether it's uh, fermented uh, uh, mushroom roots or whether it's a combination of various plant ingredients that are processed and flavored to taste like something else, Mm -hmm. uh, turns out to have a very limited appeal. No, it has an appeal to a very limited group of people. Yeah. Um, And uh, the the upsurge and the great... uh, interest in, in plant-based foods came because lots of people were trying it. Right, uh, right. Trying it is one thing, but buying it again is a second thing, and uh, there's a lot of people who didn't buy again. Uh, so uh, the plant-based industry at the moment is finding itself uh, compressed into a, a, a niche market, and all of the valuations and all of the hype and all the uh, articles that we've read um, have uh, treated plant-based food um, as a second coming in the in the gastronomic world. Uh, so it it hasn't been. Uh, I have to say that there are still large numbers of companies experimenting with plant-based foods, and even and and even more important and maybe even more durable, uh, there are companies that are. Uh, using uh, cell-based fermentation uh, techniques to create food that is um, a mimic of the the actual food. That is to say, they're not taking plants and flavoring them to make them taste like meatloaf. Uh, They're taking uh, cells from meat and fermenting them and making more cells and more cells and more cells and then figuring out how to fabricate them so it tastes... uh, either like meatloaf or uh, the holy grail of the, a real piece of steak. Hmm. And, th- and those, those are uh, really interesting uh, uh, experiments taking place. Uh, the country that's far ahead in this, well, I'm not sure the word ahead is, the, sure. uh, the, country, that's, the country that's uh, highly prolific in this is Israel. 
Um, and we don't see any of those products uh, here. Uh, you are finding uh, cell-based products in uh, Singapore uh, where the reg- uh, regulations are, are far more lax than they are here. But we may see some this year. There's another type of product that I actually hadn't heard of outside of, I would say, some of the sci-fi books I read, but this concept of hybrid meats. Can you explain what those are and how the FDA sees them and if we'll start seeing them on menus this year or, or in the relative future? The notion of hybrid meats uh, is trying to have your, you should pardon the expression, cake and eat it. Uh-huh. Uh, the simplest example of a hybrid meat is is a, a hamburger patty, patty that's uh, 50% uh, meat and 50% mushrooms. Mm. Uh, and so by, by doing that, uh, you've, uh, A, reduced your meat intake by 50%, if that's one of your objectives, uh, and B, you've uh, saved the planet from uh, 50% worth of cow farts because, <laughs> you're, because, you're, because you're mixing the meat with mushrooms that are grown in caves and uh, apparently um, don't detract from the environment. Uh, so there are uh, lots of experiments of mixing plant-based foods with uh, actual meat. Uh, it seems to me that uh, it might appeal to some of the people who tried plant-based foods and didn't like them but now might be willing to give it a try. Uh, on the other hand, the diehard uh, vegetarians in the world uh, would not be happy about this. No, no. Moving over to another piece of protein, and this is something I've seen a lot of in LA in the last uh, few months, is this concept of dry aging fish, which I feel needs an explanation because one, most people don't think you can eat old fish, and two, maybe isn't as new, at least in a Western palate, as we think it is. Yeah, well, several things about that. Um, a large portion of what you consider to be fresh fish is not necessarily fresh. It was caught on a boat um, and chilled, uh, and it might be 10 days or a week before you get it. Um, Right. uh, But there's always been a a question among uh, fish specialists and certain chefs uh, as to whether fresh fish uh, is really... uh, Ultra-fresh fish is really uh, the best-tasting fish. And uh, we, all, we all know that uh, you're, to get a proper steak, it should be aged at least 28 days. Um, and if you wanted to have that funky, uh, beefy, uh, umami taste and flavor, it should be aged even more than that. Uh, in, the, in the last 10 years or so, chefs have been aging poultry, uh, which you wouldn't want to do in your in your own refrigerator, but they are, um, and and there is and there is a, a, a big tradition of this. It's called hanging your game. Uh, right. So, so people, certain numbers of chefs now are experimenting with uh, aging fish. They hang it in an aging box, just like a side of beef, mm-hmm. uh, and it sits there for. Uh, anywhere between four days and a couple of weeks, depending on how big the hunk of fish is and what kind of fish it is. And uh, several things happen. Uh, proteins in the fish uh, become transformed. Uh, the uh, fishy odor that uh, many people find objectionable seems to uh, disappear. And and the flavor gets ramped up. It becomes the Tuna tastes more tuna-y, and your uh, uh, striped bass tastes more striped bassy, um, and it, it's very it's very difficult to explain. Um, as I said earlier, I just got back from Portugal, where I did in fact eat in a restaurant that was dry aging its fish, uh, and uh, the fish tasted like. Um, the fish I thought it would be, uh, but it, it, its flavor was uh, accentuated uh, quite a bit. And 
I'm not sure uh, that it would appeal to everyone. Uh, it would, no. or, or it would take some getting used to. But, you know, uh, there are a lot of people who don't like aged meat because they can't yeah. stand the funk. Yeah, some people just say, I, I, no age, no mold, no nothing. I just want it as fresh as I think it should be, even if it's not that fresh. Um, yeah, we're, we're uh, in a restaurant that I'm working on right now. We are serving dry-aged uh, uh, meat for hamburgers. Mm, I mean, I love that. I, I love that extra funk in a hamburger. I think me it makes too. a difference. Me too. My wife hates it. Yeah, I mean, to each their own. Yes, so uh, I, I think the, the same issue will occur with fish. You know, I think you have to remember um, a uh, one of the great food writers and critics, Gail Green, died mm. a, couple, a few mm. weeks ago. And uh, there was a memorial service for her last week. And uh, we were reminded that in the early days when she was writing, when she was under the influence of uh, um, several chefs in France, uh, that she began to write about rare fish. Hmm. And until then, uh, the thought of rare fish, somebody going into a restaurant and ordering medium rare tuna yeah. or, or, or medium rare salmon was never done, ever, in this ever. country. Uh, so now we we think nothing about nothing about going into a restaurant and saying I want my salmon medium rare or rare or black and yeah. blue. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. these, these things do evolve, and we may learn uh, that to look to like this. I mean, one of the one of the benefits of dry aging aging fish is that it doesn't spoil. No, it uh, doesn't. So it it has it has a longer shelf life, which means that. Uh, the restaurant doesn't have to deal as uh, often in, uh, with the fish going bad. You know, speaking of old becoming new again, you talk about the return of, and I didn't even know it was returning because it is actually one of my favorite meats, but mortadella, and uh, also naming its longtime compatriot the pistachio as one of the meats of the year and the nuts of the year. Um, yeah. Why have these returned? I mean, I've, I'm asking mostly for the listener because they've never gone out of fashion for me. But for people who may have moved away from what they've seen as something that was processed or maybe not as high end as, as a copa, prosciutto, um, why is mortadella back and why is pistachio coming along for the ride? Um, I have to confess, I don't have the faintest idea why mortadella is coming back, but it is. Uh, and we've, we've called it the deli meat of the year uh, because it is. Uh, I think it's uh, perhaps uh, a, uh, a mass lunacy of chefs uh, searching for uh, the next uh, available ingredient uh, or to resurrect something that, uh, that's gone out of favor uh, because it's... Um, it's hipster in, it, in, it, in its outlook. And, uh, and so uh, we're, we're seeing um, mortadella uh, on uh, uh, charcuterie boards uh, where it, it never appeared before. Um, we're seeing it on pizza. Uh, and uh, I had it on a hamburger the other day. Uh, again, testing it in, in a, in, on that dry-aged meat. I, I have to tell you, it helped. It was good. Um, and uh, why uh, mortadella today? I have I have no idea. There is no uh, mortadella association that uh, promotes this kind of thing. Mm. Now you have a few other buzzwords and trends that are coming up for this year, and while we can't hit all of them, there there are a few that I I did want to touch on. Um, you talk about bomba. What is that for those who don't know? I'm sorry. What did you say? Bomba. Bomba. Oh. Yes. Yeah. Uh, when you go to a, an Italian restaurant, more often than not, uh, you'll see the phrase Calabrian chili. Mm-hmm. Uh, Calabrian chili is a, is a breed all its own. Uh, and uh, in southern Italy, uh, there are jars of it called bomba. Uh, it, it's labeled Bamba. Uh, you can buy it 
you can buy it here in our country, except it's called Calabrian chili. And it comes in, in the form of a paste or it comes up in the form of uh, chopped uh, uh, Calabrian peppers, uh, which are extremely hot, but they have mm. actually have a flavor. They actually have a flavor. It's not just plain heat. Uh, and uh, the reason that I that I listed it is a because um, I have seen Calabrian chili peppers on on menus growing over the last uh, two years, uh, and b because I, I'm willing to bet uh, that there's no Calabrian pepper in the, in the kitchen uh, because it's more expensive. Uh, but it's not like shaking uh, the pizza, you know, crushed up pizza pepper on your uh, <laughs> on, on, on your noodles. Um, uh, it, it, it's another flavor and uh, you can buy it in mail order or if you've got a good supermarket, um, which we don't in New York, uh, but you do where you are, sure. uh, you'll find, you'll find, you'll find it on the shelves. Uh, let's talk about fried cheese sticks, which again is something that has never gone out of fashion for me, but I realized the other day when I got them from the local pizza spot, I haven't had them in for forever. And now seeing them on this list, I was like, "Oh, maybe they are making a comeback." Well, it, 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 it's partly in the uh, in the mortadella category, uh, but you know, uh, fried cheese sticks uh, still exist in places like TGI Fridays and Bennigan's, uh, sure. which is probably where you grew up eating them. And uh, they became, uh, as far as the restaurant world is concerned, um, de classe for the same reason that uh, Mortadella has become, had become. Never in my book. Yeah. You know, it's a, it's a blue collar cheese. Uh, And, uh, but chefs are experimenting, uh, not with the, uh, the rubber cheese that you get uh, in the typical mozzarella stick, Mm -hmm. uh, but with uh, fresher mozzarella, actual fresh mozzarella um, and other cheeses that uh, will hold up in the fryer without exploding. Uh, and uh, once you've had a uh, one of those cheese sticks, uh, you'll uh, discover that uh, it's not like uh, eating in Bennigan's, and uh, your mouth will will thank you. And finally, as we start to look to the future, as we do every year, but the um, concept of waste is always at the forefront, especially in the restaurant industry. I know LA just added composting to its general services for garbage takeout. You talk about upcycling waste and the sort of does tie back to inflation. And and we've seen it before with, you know, like no waste menus and things like that, which I know came uh, something that Dan Barber was a huge proponent of. But how are we going to see this more, and how is this going to be something that's going to be palatable to diners who might not be used to eating, let's say, strawberry tops and carrot skins? Uh, many, many, many years ago, uh, I was uh, on a trip uh, in the South uh, just observing uh, what was going on in the, in the restaurant industry particularly in the uh, fast food diners and coffee shop end of the world. And uh, I was walking through a kitchen with uh, the owner of one of the restaurant chains. And he saw somebody prepping uh, broccoli. Mm. And the the kid was chopping off the broccoli tops and throwing the, uh, the rest in the garbage pail. And the owner fished it out and he called the manager over and said, uh, you're throwing away half of what I just bought. Right. And uh, if you can't figure out what to do with this on your menu, um, I'm here to help. Right. So uh, this issue of waste is, is not anything new. I think uh, what's happened is that uh, there's a, a level of virtue signaling um, about the environment that says that we should use every last bit, which we should. I agree. Uh, uh, and uh, there are lots of things you can do with uh, the broccoli stems. Uh, yep. We don't throw we don't throw ours out, and we don't throw out the stems from the cilantro or the parsley. Uh, and uh, we we do use carrot tops uh, in pesto. Uh, and I I think all this is 
beneficial for uh, for the restaurant industry and for people at home. Uh, it's also beneficial uh, psychologically because uh, you think that you're uh, doing something to save humanity. Yeah. Uh, what? How much of that uh, is marginal, and how much of it is, is real is a, is an open question. Uh, but not throwing things away is a good idea. And uh, you know, I, I'm old enough to have grown up when when you didn't throw anything away, you had it repaired. <laughs> yeah. Well, listen, Michael, I cannot uh, thank you enough. Always a pleasure to read the report and then always a pleasure to sit down and chat with you. If people want to read the report or get in touch uh, to work with you, where can they go um, to communicate? Um, they can um, look up. I, actually, what the easiest thing to do is to type in the words Michael White Man, two words, and trends, and you'll find me. Very true. Very true. Well, Michael, thank you so much. Thank you for taking the time uh, to share your insights and everything. We have one last song from the archives, and then we will see you next week here on Snacky Tunes on Heritage Radio Network. To the test, girl. I'm under arrest. No, we won't sleep till the streets are clean and the levee broke. Now we got fire before smoke somehow. The results are in. Negatives are positive Cause I'm a prisoner of love When it rains it pours Oh, when I toughen up now You'll take me back in your arms No more living large, girl We're flirting with danger Dancing with strangers Now it's just you and me, girl Inmate number 715-203 Yeah, you will be my captor Sunshine, my big time, my laughter. Cause I'm a prisoner of love. When it rains, it pours. Oh, when I toughen up now, you'll take me back in your arms. Prisoner, yeah, I'm a prisoner of love. Yeah, we're not coming out now No Talk ain't always cheap now I made a promise that I'm gonna keep somehow Show you what I'm made of A little prisoner, no prisoner Yeah, prisoner, prisoner of love Toughen up now Won't you take me back in your arms Prisoner of love Just a little prisoner of love Toughen up now Won't you take me back in your arms 
Snacky Tunes is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.